Hello, welcome back to Women in the Word. Great to see you all, great to be with you, great to be with everyone wherever they are right now. Glad for Women in the Word to continue. And we're going to be looking at our next chapter in the book of Hebrews. And we're even going to talk a little bit about Christmas today, which it's just around the corner. It's crazy. It's going to be wonderful. I love that as a church, we all celebrate Christmas together. It's one of my favorite times. When we think of Jesus at Christmas, we think of words like manger and baby and savior, but the word sacrifice, that's not something you usually hear at Christmas. I know I don't use that word when I talk about Christ at Christmas, but since Christmas is about God coming in the flesh to, to dwell with us, if we want to answer the question, why did he come here to earth, the word sacrifice is a good word to use. Jesus was born to die, that it was a sacrifice is an understatement. So first let's look at why his sacrifice was necessary. Let's turn to Hebrews 10 and look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So when the author speaks about the law here, he means the totality of the old covenant. So let's just remind ourselves, go back to the time of Moses. Remember, the Jews were only in the wilderness after they left Egypt for about three months. God had delivered them. And now God was going to be speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, speaking to the people through Moses. And Exodus tells us there was thunder, there was lightning flashing, the ground was shaking, Mount Sinai was smoking, and the people were trembling in terror as God was revealing his covenant to Israel. Look on your verse sheet at Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice, God said, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is what God's telling Moses. So we know the old covenant was the law of Moses, the Mosaic law given by God to Israel and everything that went with it. It held external promises of national nation to have protection and to have prosperity and to have power. The law birthed the sacrificial system, sacred rites and ceremonies, all of which when you read the Old Testament had many detailed regulations that went with it. And when we read all that and we study this, sometimes we just look back at our lives, how we live today, and we think about this and think, what was that all about? I mean, was it a bad thing? Was the old covenant something wrong with it? You know, it's easy we compare the old covenant with the new, and we want to say one is good and one is bad. 
But the reality is this author of Hebrews doesn't do that. He wants us to see that some things in the Old Covenant were good things because they prepared the way for the New Covenant. People were made aware of their sin because of the Old Covenant. So it finds fulfillment in the New Covenant because the New Covenant brought a way to deal with our sins. Life under the law was a shadow of the life to come. It pointed to good things to come. What were the good things to come? We can answer that in one word. Jesus. Jesus was coming. The good things are everything he accomplished for us by his life, his death, and his resurrection. Everything that the sacrificial system could not accomplish. The most precious being the total forgiveness of our sins. Look at Jeremiah 31. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus was the good thing to come that secured our permanent forgiveness of sins. Imagine being a Hebrew, you're in your tent one morning, you're waking up and the sun's coming in, it's early morning, and you hear these loud sounds. And it's the animal sounds, it's bulls and goats being led to the area of sacrifice. And as you're laying in your tent, you're thinking, I'm a, I'm a sinner. That's why those bulls and goats are going past my tent every morning to be sacrificed for me. And imagine, as you're being reminded of your sins, being reminded every day, again and again and again. Israel's sacrifices couldn't keep up with Israel's sinfulness. In these sacrifices, God's judgment was just temporarily suspended because how could the blood of an animal pay for a human's sins. Every one of those animal sacrifices was a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that was on the way. They pointed to man's great sinfulness and his need for a great sacrifice. So when Jesus came to this earth, just when he was about to begin his ministry, his cousin John the Baptist announced, here's the good things to come. He saw Jesus coming toward him. He had arrived to be baptized, standing near the Sea of Galilee. John looks up and sees him and cries out for all the Jews to hear, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Takes them away. The Jews sacrificed a lamb every morning in the Old Covenant, and now the living, walking, sacrifice lamb of God arrived, and when he came, the New Covenant came with him. Their sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near. Jesus could. Those who draw near to him could be made perfect, meaning total removal total removal of the guilt of our sins that kept us apart from God. Don't you remember what that felt like the day you first understood that? Don't you love thinking about that every day when you wake up? 
that you're not listening to the sounds of bulls and goats walking past you, the loud noises and voices accusing you of your guilt. We are made perfect by the unblemished Lamb of God. We aren't sinless, but we stand before the presence of God, washed clean by his Son. And in that way, Jesus, in him, we have the substance of all the old covenant symbols set forth. He is our sacrificial lamb. Jesus is our altar. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our all in all. Look what Galatians 3 says. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You know, sometimes we still want a guardian, don't we? These are, these are the good things in our lives that are um, things that make us feel safe. You know, it made me think about how we even like to all sit in the same place on Sunday mornings. We do. I'm that way too. And when my husband Ted was in the pulpit every Sunday, he could tell you, no, that guy wasn't here because he knew exactly where he sat. So sometimes we would see people where these poor, unsuspecting visitors came to church and sat in their pew spot. And we would see the regular seizures coming in and go, and they'd, they'd look and talk and then they'd kind of back away, not knowing what to do. But I'm talking about really more serious guardians we sometimes cling to, and they're all good things. Good Christian books, good Christian counselors, good Christian people. But even though it's not their fault, sometimes these good things keep us from pursuing the best thing. They may be wonderful, they may be about Jesus, but they aren't Jesus. If we put all our hope in these guardians, we will dis be disappointed as we try to live out our Christian life. You know, I've mentioned this story in the past that once Ted and I were at a campsite on a weekend, and it was a Sunday morning, and a group of people um, knew Ted was a pastor and said, hey, you can lead us in a worship service here on this campground. And Ted said, okay. And all of a sudden, this one woman began to get very upset and protesting very loudly that he could not lead a worship service because he wasn't a member of the right denomination. She threw such a fit, there was no worship service. I would say her denomination was her guardian. Her denomination was made her feel safe. And because of her, we were not able to worship Jesus. And that's what happens when we make shadows of the truth a greater priority than the truth itself. Jesus is not worshipped. We have to step out from those shadows to pursue the deep, deeper truths of Christ. And I, it just made me think about Mary Magdalene. Let's be like Mary Magdalene. 
You know, she made her pursuit of Jesus such a priority after he released her from demon possession. She pursued Jesus on his ministry journeys, helped him with other women, pursued him to the cross, was there watching him suffer and die. She pursued him after his death by taking ointments and spices to the tomb. And she was the first to see the risen Christ. And here's how she kept pursuing him. She did what he said. She decided to follow him in obedience. She ran and began telling everyone she saw, he's alive. All of her hopes were in Jesus. This is where we put our hopes as well. We set aside the lesser things. We trust in the good thing that came into our world. That was the day a child brought an offering into the world. Let's look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. O holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And our soul felt its worth. It was a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices, O night divine. The night when Christ was born, the king of kings lay in a lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need to our weakness. He's no stranger. Behold your king. Before him lowly bend, O night divine, the night when Christ was born. If you happen to be near that manger and looking down that night of Jesus' birth and peeked inside, you would have seen the body of a newborn baby. But you would also have been looking at an offering for your sin on that night in Bethlehem. You know, we just read about David's prophecy when Christ came into the world. It said that Jesus said, sacrifices and offerings you haven't desired. So it almost makes it sound like the baby Jesus is in Mary's lap and he looks up to say to God, sacrifices and offerings. I think Mary would have passed out, fainted. I don't think he did that. I think it means he knew exactly why he came here. When he entered our broken world, he knew why he was here. He came from heaven obediently offering his own body as the final sacrifice for our sins. It was time. God was not pleased with Israel's sacrifices. They were just rituals. They didn't have obedience behind them. They didn't have a heart behind them. And they didn't have the ability to atone for anyone's sins. Jesus was a superior sacrifice. God had prepared him from the very beginning. In fact, it says in these verses we just read um, that it was written in the scroll of the book, which would be the law of Moses. 
Remember after Jesus ascended after his resurrection and he was walking on the road, after he had risen, he was walking on the road to Emmaus with some people and he begins to say, hey, didn't you believe what everyone said? Even Moses wrote about me. That's what this prophecy right here is saying. Even Moses wrote about Jesus and Jesus would obey his father's will. Look at John 10. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so the birth of Jesus was also the birth of a new covenant. Let's look at verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasures and sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Jesus did away with the old to establish the new, and here's the new covenant. It's Christ's law. It's the internal promises of his spirit, salvation, and total forgiveness. We've talked about in the old covenant, remember the priests had to stand every day repeatedly offering these sacrifices, but that in the new covenant, Jesus only has one sacrifice to give, and it would account and accomplish everything. So I want us to look at the different postures between the old covenant priests and our high priest in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the old covenant priests had to stand all the time. They stood because they were repeatedly offering sacrifices and never completing atonement. But we see here Christ sits at the right of his father because his sacrifice is a done deal, complete, victorious. Verse 14 tells us he's perfecting those who are being sanctified. And there are two types of sanctification, positional and progressive. Progressive is one we think about a lot, meaning I'm growing in maturity, I'm growing to know Christ more, growing in obedience. But in verses 10 and 14, to be sanctified is positional, meaning this. Jesus provides for every believer a permanent condition of holiness. That's what sanctification means there. It means we are made holy. Otherwise, we could never approach a holy God. I love this song, Before the Throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free 
For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Made holy, sanctified through Christ's death, new covenant worshipers are sanctified to serve God without guilt. We also will always experience progressive sanctification as we grow in Christ. And that growth happens by one of the gifts of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit that lives within us now. It came and went with God's purposes in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, but in the New Covenant, it is coming to live within us itself. Jesus sent the Spirit to do his work of sanctifying us into our own lives. I remember years ago, I was in the church and a young attender came down front, everybody was leaving, and he was kind of looking longingly up at the pulpit. And he said, it must be so great to stand up there and preach and make everyone feel guilty so they'll change. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I, uh, I said, you know what? It's the preacher's job to teach the word of God. It's your spirit within you, the Holy Spirit's job to convict you of your sins and to change your lives. Using guilt as a motivator does not bring about long-term changes. We can look at the nation of Israel to even see that. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The new covenant is not about external works for God. The new covenant is about internal works of God in my life. We don't serve God begrudgingly out of guilt and obligation, but our service to God flows out of a heart that knows him and loves him. Jesus told, what, told us what that looks like. Look at Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How can we do that? How can we take up? We do it because he sent a spirit to live within us. We have a helper. Jesus was born to die. We are born again to die to self and to live for him. There's some more wonderful news under the new covenant. We are a people in the light. No shadows for us. I grew up in Chicago, and um, it was dark all the time. Everywhere I went, my parents turned all the lights off. The, sky, the sun never came out in the winter. So if you come to my house right now, every curtain's open and every light's on. And my dad comes over and says, you've got all your lights on. I say, I know. We aren't in the shadows like the people in the Old Testament. God's covenant. Now, this is exciting. We are a people. We are not just a nation called to be holy. We are about being individual people coming out of the shadows into the light, united by faith. Under the new covenant, believers gather from every nation, not just one nation, to become Christ's holy church. We join that church in faith by walking through the curtain of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Look at verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, the curtain was one of the shadows in the Old Covenant that shed a light and explained Christ's sacrifice in the New Covenant. Now, when we picture a curtain, I don't want you to picture like your shower curtain. That's not what this curtain looked like in the tabernacle. It was thick. It was woven tight. It was colorful. It was in the tabernacle, later in the temple. It separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The holy of holies is where the presence of God dwelled above the mercy seat. And it separated God's presence from everyone but the high priest who went in here once a year to atone for sins. On the cross, Jesus was our high priest atoning for our sins. So when he cried out, it is finished. That curtain that was a barrier between God and man was also literally and spiritually torn in two. Let me read this while you look at this, at this slide. Matthew 27, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lemesa bakhtani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, it is finished, and yielded up, up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Jesus opened that curtain. He keeps it open for anyone who wants to come in by faith. And what do we find when we accept this offering of Jesus? What's behind the curtain? Well, cleansed by the blood of Christ, together we live a life of confidence, we just read about, and community. We find confidence to approach our creator, to approach our God. We don't live wondering every day, was I good enough today to have a relationship with God? That's the fear of every false religion. Our hearts, our minds are cleansed from an evil conscience. Our bodies that carried the scars and the dirt of our sins are now squeaky clean. The author uses the word sprinkled clean here because blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to cleanse sin for Israel. We know we have a high priest who's eternal, he's faithful, so each new day is a day of hope. We never have to waver in that hope. The hope of his presence, his power, his compassion in our lives. 
But also behind that curtain is a new community. It's each other. It helps us maintain the hope that we have in Christ. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Three marks of a healthy church are here. We come together for the purpose of sacrificial love, good works, and encouragement. First, when he says, stir up one another to love, the word love there actually translates to agape love. This is sacrificial love. This is a mark of Christ. This sets us apart from the world's kind of love. Remember that song that uh, we always sang? We sang it in Young Life every day almost. Uh, they will know we are Christians by our love. Really? That is how people will know we're Christians, by how we love. It should be a different love than the world's. It should be unconditional. It should be patient. It should be enduring. Maybe you heard this story. There's a Chinese evangelist named Watchman Nee. He knew a Christian farmer, and he used to tell the story. The Christian farmer was a rice farmer, lived high on a hill, and he had to water his rice every day to keep his rice healthy and growing. But every day, there was a non-Christian farmer below him on the hill. And so he would open the dikes as he was watering his so that the farmer on the top of the hill, it was a believer, his water would go down and just help the farmer who didn't know the Lord. His rice field, it began to grow and flourish, and the Christian farmer's rice field began to die. And he didn't know how to handle it. So he went to the church. And he said, hey, let's all get together. Let's pray about this. What, what would be the way to love that neighbor but still not lose all my rice? So they prayed. They all came together with a solution. They told him, you got to get up earlier. you got to start watering really early. But then leave your water on so that the man under you can use your water for his field. And, and Watchman Nee says that that's what that Christian farmer did. And eventually, guess what happened to the farmer down the hill? He wanted to know, how could you love me like that? How could you sacrifice like that? I want to know your God. And he came to Christ. The love Christians have out into the world uh, can make the entire world a different place. I was just with some of my high school friends last weekend, and uh, one of them, Polly, your name was, she was in a car accident quite a few years ago that almost took her life. Uh, the driver was very drunk and very reckless. She was in the hospital for many months. And she was telling me last, just last weekend, she said, you know, after that happened, everyone I saw told me I needed to sue that man. And she said, why would I do that? I feel really sad for that man. That kind of love cannot come from a heart that doesn't have God's spirit living within it. She loved sacrificially and said she prays for him. She doesn't want to sue him. She's sad for him. 
Secondly, here we read, we stir each other up to good works. We do this not to achieve salvation, but to build up the church, to glorify God. We give each other high fives in ministry, so ministry keeps happening. We encourage each other as we wait for Christ to return. That means we weep together. We laugh together. We remind each other of the promises of God that belong to us. What a joy that we have each other. That we're all here together today, united in Christ. The author of Hebrews now kind of looks around at the early church here and is worrying that some of these truths he just shared, some people may be falling away from those truths. Some weren't meeting together like they should have been. Some weren't trusting in Jesus anymore, but going back to trusting in the old covenant legalistic system. And the author has a dire warning for the consequences of choosing these sins over Christ. Departing from faith in Christ is called apostasy, and there are strong consequences. Let's look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Woo! This is a great warning for this church that wants to continue to follow Christ. And we remember when we look at this passage that scripture interprets scripture. So from the context of chapter 10, we know that the author speaking to believers here because this section is a continuation of everything above it that was written to the church. He also uses the word we, including himself as one he's speaking to. And these people had received the knowledge we read. That meant experienced this truth. And they were sanctified, meaning they were also made holy. And verse 30 tells us these were God's people. So the author has such a strong desire to protect the church. He wants to strengthen them. He wants to keep them from suffering. So he tells them, if you reject what you know to be true, and in verse 26, this means willfully, deliberately, continually sinning against Christ, then what sacrifice would keep you from God's judgment since you are rejecting the sacrifice of Christ? Do you want to return to the old covenant sacrifices? They're useless. So when we read these passages, we think, oh, this is all about hell because it's about fire. But often fire isn't about hell. It can be about God's fiery indignation, his retribution, his punishment. And it seems to mean here a temporal judgment in this life. Because these apostates have made themselves enemies, he says adversaries, 
of God. It also made me think of 1 Corinthians 3 where it says, Some will be saved, but as if by fire. I thought about an example of this kind of person in judgment. I thought of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. A great king, but he also believed God was great. He confessed in his greatness. But then as he got more powerful and more things and more possessions, he began to say, look at me. I'm the greatest. It's all about me. And he bragged, and God warned him, and he still bragged. So God judged him. He lost his sense of reasoning. He lived in a field wet with dew. He ate grass like an ox. It says his hair grew as long as eagle feathers. His nails became like bird's claws. The judgment of God. You know, under the old covenant, if an Israelite defied Moses and there were witnesses, the law of Moses, he was put to death. And so the author is saying here, if defying the old covenant brought about death, this is an inferior covenant, what kind of judgment could you expect to find Christ and his superior covenant? So we see three marks of apostasy in these verses. First of all, they were trampling underfoot the Son of God. Here's what that means. They were rejecting the identity of Christ. They were rejecting who Jesus was and is. Secondly, they were regarding the blood of the covenant as profane, meaning they denounced that Jesus' blood could purify their sins. They denounced it. They treated his blood as common as their own blood. And then thirdly, they outraged the spirit of grace. This means degrading the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of our salvation. <laughs> Choosing works, Choosing self-righteousness over the grace that God offers. The author warns them, if this is you, you can expect the judgment of God. And God himself has the right to judge those who deliberately sin after knowing truth. But I love that the author ends here in this chapter by encouraging them. And then he says to them, hey, but that's not us. That's not what we're doing. You're not shrinking away from what's true. You're not shrinking from the faith. And then he lets them know two ways that they can stay on God's path. He tells them, remember the past and believe in the future. Remember the past, believe in the future. Look at verse 32. He says to them, remember the past. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So first they looked at the past and how they persevered in that persecution. Secondly, they believed in the future. Together they believed, as the author says, that this world is not my home. I am just a passing through. You can continue in the faith when you remember and believe that. Look at verse 35. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. 
so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve the souls. We help each other live in favor with God and all the rewards that come in come with it that way we aren't destroyed here meaning temporal ruin we aren't sure what judgment that might mean instead we preserve our souls and the word soul here means someone's life someone's being so as members of Christ's body it is our job to bring out the best in each other that's what this church was doing Uh, look at Ephesians 4 I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. So when Christ was on this earth, he had many followers. Some stuck with him, some rejected him. And he would watch this happen continually, different followers who would just turn around and walk a path away from him. And so one day, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, do you want to go away as well? And Peter looked at him and said, Lord, where would we go? And maybe he was thinking, will we go to the law again? Will we go to the shadows Would we go to old guardians? And then Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. We have believed, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus was born to die, and because of that, we live. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We know that with you and your sacrifice, you brought us many gifts. We live them out each day. I pray we would have the strength to trust you and stay strong. And I pray we would represent you by our love in a fallen world. And we just love you and give you all glory in Christ's name. Amen.